0: morning we will be looking at what is commonly known as Peter's second sermon. I believe the powers that be stopped counting after that, so don't know how many he actually did, but this was the second. Verses 11 of chapter 3 through verse 26, but I'm going to read only from verse 11 through verse 16. Acts chapter 3 beginning in verse 11 through verse 16. And while he was clinging to Peter and John... All the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why do you gaze at us? It is as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up, And disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Let us pray. There have been, of course, a great many heresies and errors in both theology and thought that have crept into the church since Peter delivered this second sermon, two that I believe have been perhaps most detrimental to the understanding within the church of what it is God has done through Jesus Christ. And most detrimental to understanding our understanding of what we read in the book of Acts are two thoughts, two systems that you would not usually put together. The first is anti-Semitism. The second is dispensationalism. Now as I said, you wouldn't normally put those together because typically within dispensationalism there's a great deal of honor given to the people of Israel in their Old Testament form and in, of course, what is believed to be their future form in the millennial reign. Anti-Semitism, of course, I think we all understand to be an evil. Technically, it is an irrational hatred of the lineage of Shem, which is where we get the the term Semite, but practically it is a violent hatred of the Jewish people, who are not the only Semites in the world, but nonetheless are uniquely and singly the target of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism did, in fact, creep into the church within the second and third centuries, very early after the apostles left the scene. It has no basis in New Testament scripture. It is a lie of the devil and it has been very damaging to the church. It is a form of patricide, wherein the church murders its own father, making herself an orphan. And we are a product of that, whether we are anti-Semites or not. And I do pray to God that none of us are. But we are a product of that heritage, wherein, within the church, the Jews became called Christ-killers. And it became an act of worship to God to persecute and even kill a Jew. Now that in and of itself was an evil. But what it has done to our understanding of the church is that it has divorced us as Gentile Christians from the 1,500-year heritage that we possess in Christ. It takes away the vine and the tree into which we were grafted. And now we become branches, unnatural, wild branches, hanging out in the midst of nowhere. Because we read these passages as Gentiles, as 21st century evangelicals, and we don't understand what we're reading. Because we have allowed our minds to be washed clear of all Jewish content, of our Messiah, and of the context in which he came to this world. And so we are practical anti-Semites, and so are dispensationalists. For as I said, although they honor the nation of Israel, in fact believing Israel to be the bride of God, whereas the church is merely the bride of Christ, yet they separate the church from its Jewish heritage believing that that which is written in the Bible for the Jews is literally and only ever for the Jews, and failing to understand that that which has been promised to them has been graciously granted to us in Jesus Christ. And so they lose contact with all those wonderful covenant promises that are yea and amen for us in Jesus Christ. So both errors, anti-Semitism, which is an inveterate evil, and dispensationalism, which is a theological mistake. They both have an incredibly detrimental effect. And the way this manifests itself, I mentioned last week, or perhaps the week before earlier in this series, the way this manifests itself in our understanding is that we read the early chapters of Acts almost to a single person among us. We think we're reading about the beginning of the church. Do we not? Oh, this is the beginning of the church. I wonder if someone had come up to Peter and say, oh, you're, you're beginning the church. What he would have said. He would have said, may it never be. What are you talking about? Listen to what I'm saying. The God and Father, of, of the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is not a new religion. This was not a new thing. He was calling back to that one whom the nation of Israel called its God. And then when he begins to talk about Jesus, and I believe beginning in verse 13 is where our understanding is seriously diminished. If we do not understand the teaching of the Old Testament with regard to the coming Messiah, we do not understand that when Peter says that God, the God of our fathers has glorified His servant Jesus. Now some of your Bibles may say His child. Jesus. Both words are used, servant in the Hebrew, child in the Greek, to translate the servant songs of Isaiah. What Peter is saying here would have brought the minds of his hearers back to the prophet Isaiah and to those servant songs in Isaiah 42 through 53. Where the Lord through Isaiah outlines the coming Messiah, that he would be Eved Yahweh, the servant of Jehovah. So Peter says, God has glorified His servant. Hey folks, that's the Messiah. Peter could have put a little parenthesis in, or maybe John off to the side said, you know, in case you haven't been reading Isaiah lately, I'm talking about the Messiah here. But you have disowned the Holy and Righteous One. Well again, he's talking, he's, he's hailing back to the Psalms and to Isaiah again. Listen to some of these passages Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. Isaiah 49, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the remnant of Israel. Psalm 16, for thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to see decay. And Isaiah 53, And much of what Peter has to say here comes out of Isaiah 53, that beautiful gospel according to Isaiah. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He goes on, Peter does, to call this one Jesus whom the people had put to death the prince of life. That word literally means the author of life. He continues, as he did in his first sermon, to accuse them of murder. And not just any old murder, but the murder of the one God had promised to the people for a thousand years and more. Lower or Later on in this sermon in verse 20, Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. All of these different titles, the servant of Yahweh, the holy and righteous one, the prince of life, and the prophet as unto Moses, all of these titles were messianic in the understanding of the Jews. As we've been learning on Thursday night, the Jews did not necessarily understand that each of these titles was, in fact, a description of but one promised deliverer. But Peter might have been in a synagogue. He might have been on the Sabbath day opening the scriptures among his countrymen and talking about the Deliverer who was to come. But as it was, he was in Solomon's colonnade at the temple and he was telling his brethren about the Deliverer who had come. He wasn't beginning a new religion. This wasn't the beginning of Christianity. This was the culmination of Judaism. In fact, not, much, not just a culmination. This was a crisis. And I think we need to understand that this was a tremendous crisis in the life and history of the nation of Israel. Her Messiah had come, and according to scriptures, had suffered death for the sins of his people. And God had raised him from the dead and seated him with authority at his right hand. And now he had left to his disciples to proclaim and witness to that resurrection, and to call his people to repent because if they didn't they wouldn't get another chance it's a crisis now if we understand the history of Israel and the messianic promises that lead to this crisis then we will understand that the gospel when it is proclaimed is always at every point a crisis it's not a happy message It's not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's that God has promised to do this and this, has done it, and now you need to repent. That is the message of the gospel. And it was the message that Peter was bringing. This was a message that we saw earlier in his first sermon, and again in this one, astounded the Jews. And it caused thousands to come to faith in Jesus Christ, to come to salvation, to enter into the kingdom of the Messiah. But perhaps in all of these titles that Peter uses, the one that was most profound, the word that was most significant, is what he says in verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name. Now we don't understand what that word meant to the Jews. The word name. We baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, but we as Gentiles and especially as modern evangelicals do not understand that the name of God was the totality of His glory. The name of God was so revered among the Jews, the name Yahweh, that it would not be pronounced. Rather what would be said was Hashem, The name. They would pray and they would invoke the blessing from the name. And so when Peter says to the Jews, it is faith in his name. He's saying something more than Jesus is your Messiah. He's saying more than he's just the servant of Yahweh, the prince of life, the holy and righteous one. He's saying, folks, he's your God. Because it was forbidden that the Jews place their faith in any other than the name Jehovah. The crisis was so intense. What Peter was saying might easily have gotten him stoned. What he was saying would have been considered blasphemy. We'll see very soon that it will get him arrested and almost condemned. We'll see that, Lord willing, in chapter 4. Peter is saying that God has brought to his people the prophet that was prophesied long ago through Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And he's reminding them, although he doesn't say the words himself, he's reminding them of the words of the Baptist John. That this one who has come has come with a winnowing fork in his hand. Because he says in verse 23, and it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. There's that crisis. There's that winnowing fork. That's what should have been expected by the Jews with the coming. The the prophets would tell them, you're looking forward to the day of the Lord, aren't you? But who can endure the day of the Lord? It will be a day of wrath. It will be a day of darkness and of blood and of judgment. And Peter is saying, that day has come. Because that prophet has come. And it is Jesus Christ whom you killed, whom God raised from the dead. But I want to bring it home to you, Peter says. I want you to understand how important this is. This is not just another rabbi. We're not just starting another rabbinic school. Like the school of Hillel or the school of Shammai. Now we have the school of Jesus. No. Listen to Moses. It shall come to pass that any Israelite who does not give heed to the words of that prophet shall be cut off from among his people. There's your crisis. Peter is telling his audience that the one by whose power this lame man was healed, this Jesus whom they crucified, is the one by whom all Israel was to be measured as true or false. False. Paul tells us that not all Israel is Israel. And we understand from his teaching and we understand from the teaching of the Old Testament that there are those within physical Israel who were not numbered among the elect. They were not among the remnant. They were not among those whom God would call his people in the end. They were false Israel. And Peter is now bringing that that litmus test Many within the nation of Israel would be numbered among the truly elect and would come to faith in Jesus Christ, but many more would not. They would be cut off. Their Israelite status would be revoked, and they would be eventually destroyed. This is the the message of the Sermon on the Mount, or not the Sermon on the Mount, but Mount Olivet, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus saying that this generation shall not pass until all these things come to be. And now Peter is saying, here's the litmus test, folks. Here is what will tell whether you are true or false in Israel. And it is Hashem, the name, the name of Jesus. In his next presentation, not a sermon because he was in front of the Sanhedrin, Peter will tell them that there is no other name. There is no other name. Now, hear that if you can. Hear that if you can as a Second Temple Jew. Your allegiance is to Jehovah, Hashem. And here is this Galilean fisherman telling you that there is no other name but the name of Jesus by which we must be saved. What do you hear? You hear him saying that Jesus is God. Or you hear him saying that there is another God. But Peter has made it clear, no, no, no. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers. The God now, by the grace of God through adoption. The God of our fathers. So much heritage. We have lost in the church on the basis of faith in his name. The name of Jesus had strengthened this man, had given him health as a sign, as a symbol, as a a work of wonder to show the people that true health, true healing, which by the way in the Greek is the word sozo, which means to save. True salvation is in the name of Jesus Christ alone what we have done with that in the modern church is we have made the name of Jesus a magical talisman and we have people going around rebuking the devil in the name of Jesus and claiming wealth in the name of Jesus we even pray in the name of Jesus do we know what we're saying when we say in Jesus name amen do we understand the biblical, scriptural meaning of that term, name, when we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, do we know what we're talking about? If we study our scriptures, especially the Old Testament, we will come to know that this isn't just some magical formula. This isn't something that we can just throw up as an anti-Satan device or an anti-negative circumstance device, anti-poverty, anti-sickness, We just throw out the name of Jesus and magic will happen. No, that's not how it works. This is the holy name of God. This is the name by which God is now to be known. We don't worship the same God as the Jews do. We don't worship the same God as the Muslims do. Now I know politicians have told you differently. But as in all things, don't trust what the politicians say. God has revealed himself throughout history through names. He tells Moses that his name is Yahweh. And he says, your fathers, the patriarchs, did not know me according to that name. And as far as we can tell, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God as El Shaddai. And before that, they knew God as El Elyon. The Most High God. So throughout history, God has revealed more of Himself. And at each revelation, He expects to be worshipped according to the name He has revealed. He has, in these last days, revealed Himself in the name Jesus. And unless one worships God through Jesus Christ, then he or she is not worshipping the one true God. Not a magical formula, but rather the name of Almighty God is Jesus. When we come to these passages in acts, we move too fast to the church, to the Gentile church, to the church that, that we are in and the church that we study in church history, the church that grew through the second and third centuries and was made legal by Constantine and blah, blah, blah through the Reformation, we, we just jumped to that. But folks, we haven't showed up yet in the story. And you know, when you're reading, and this is a story, it's history, but it is a narrative of events that occurred. And when you're reading a story, it doesn't do you any good to bring in characters from later chapters into the early parts. We're not in the story yet. We will be soon enough. But I think as Gentiles... Our character, the unnatural and wild branch, hasn't been introduced yet. And so I think we need to to leave ourselves out of the picture so that we may better understand our place and the grace of God in bringing us in by allowing us to come in when and how we do. What we're looking at is really a, a family history of things that happened before we were adopted into the family. You know, we're looking at the heritage that was established when we read the Old Testament and we read the Gospels and we read the early chapters of Acts. We're looking at a heritage that we have been grafted into that has become ours by God's grace in Jesus Christ. And so it's very important to us. But what we tend to do, and this is not a word, but we tend to gentilize it. We tend to make it Western. We tend to make it Gentile. And if you read the commentaries and you read the theologies, you can see it so patently. There's almost no mention in the commentaries. In fact, I was not able to find in any of the commentaries I consulted the fact that his servant Jesus, his servant Jesus, or his, um, yeah, his servant Jesus was a reference to the servant songs of Isaiah that a holy and righteous one was a reference to the prophecies of Isaiah and of the Psalms. There was no mention of that because there's so much disconnect now between the Western Evangelical Church and its Jewish heritage. But Peter, and later Paul, knew better. Theirs was an understanding forged in 1,500 years of divine revelation to one people, to one nation, Israel. They recognized in Jesus the hope that has, been, that has sustained their people for generations. One man is healed. And so Peter goes for the whole nation. Verse 19, I think, is the key verse of this whole passage. Repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Again, Do we really understand what Peter is saying here when he says, repent and return? If we understand who we are, then we can understand that there was no way for us to return because we were never there to begin with. We were, as Paul says, without God and without hope, separated from the commonwealth of Israel. But Peter is talking to Jews. And so he says, repent and return. And there's a lot of, of, of uh, huff over the fact that he doesn't say the same thing that he said in his first sermon. Where he said, repent and be baptized. But here he says, repent and return. And therefore baptism is as important as we make it out to be. That's all baloney. We don't always say the same. They'd be rather boring for the congregations if we said the same thing week after week. I've been in a church like that actually. I remember that church. It was in Oklahoma City. Same thing, week after week. Have you ever been in a church like that? It's a bit droll. Peter is allowed to say something different and it's our challenge to understand what it is that Peter is saying. Repent and return. This is the crux of the whole matter for the nation of Israel. This is the essence of the good news, the gospel. Repent and be baptized. Repent and return. Repentance is taught in our day by many who profess to be believers as an option. That you can be saved simply by believing in Jesus Christ and asking Him for salvation. But if you want rewards when you get to heaven, then you're going to need to repent of your sins and submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is heresy. It's clearly false teaching. Repentance was at the very heart of the Judaic religion, not just Christianity, The rabbis in the intertestamental period, which was the time from the close of the prophetic witness of the Old Testament to what we call now the beginning of the New Testament era, the, the rabbis taught, if all Israel together repented for a single day, redemption through the Messiah would come. Now obviously it didn't happen that way. But if all Israel would repent for just a single day, everyone together, then redemption would come to Israel through the Messiah. The language Peter uses is that of the exile. When you think and when you read the word return, the mindset is that of the exile. Returning from the exile of Babylon. But you say, Israel was back in the land. Israel had returned from the exile. Israel was back in Jerusalem, back in Judea. How could he say return? Well, the Jews understood, and their writings are very clear, that even though they were back in the land, they were still in exile. They did not have a Davidic king. They were not sovereign in their nation. And while they were allowed to practice their religion, Their religion was strictly guarded by their Roman overlords. And even the temple that was being built was being financed by Herod, who was a half-breed. The faithful among the Jews knew themselves to be still in exile under foreign rule. And they were longing for the true return that Peter here proclaims. When he says times of refreshing may come from the throne of God. These are words that speak to the wilderness. This is like an oasis in the desert, or, more appropriate to the Israelites, water from a rock. You are, he says, really destitute. You are desperate. The zealots at that time were gaining in popularity. Even one of them was one of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot. Within a generation, they would launch a futile rebellion against the Roman Empire. They would be crushed, their nation destroyed, their city laid waste, their temple raised to the ground, and their nation dispersed into the world. That's what was coming. These people were desperate, looking for God to act according to his promises and to deliver his people, to give them that freedom that they had yearned for. Returning from exile. And here Peter stands up and said, he's done it. Through Jesus Christ, he has given us deliverance not from the Romans, not from from some political power, but from Satan and from the bondage of our sins. And he has caused us now to be his true sons and daughters. It's as if Peter was, was rehearsing to them the words of Isaiah In chapter 35, And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting unto Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. That was the blessing that Peter brought to his people through the name of Jesus Christ. But there was also a curse. Just as on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, there was a blessing and there was a curse. This was a crisis. The preaching of the name of Jesus Christ. Peter's sermons thus far have followed a similar pattern. You killed Jesus, the promised Messiah, the holy and righteous servant. But God has raised him from the dead and exalted him. Now, therefore, repent. In the first sermon, there was not an or else. In the second sermon, there was. For everyone who does not heed every word that this prophet utters shall be cut off from his people. Repent or else. These would be the words, will be the words from Paul to the Gentiles. We did not, as it were, kill Jesus. He was not one of us. But we were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were without hope and without God in the world. But God has brought to the Gentiles His Savior. In Acts chapter 17, that's what we read. And that He has now called all men everywhere to do what? Repent. He has given proof to the completion of His work through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Paul's message, Peter's message, focusing on the name of Jesus and on the resurrection with the response of the people being the same, repent. This has ever been the message of the gospel. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is nearing the end of his time with his people. God is going to To take him away, he is not going to be allowed to enter the land. And Moses, 1,500 years before Peter, gives the same message as Peter does to the people, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death. Therefore, choose life. This must be the message of the church of Jesus Christ. Our message cannot be moral, political, ethical, economic. I know it's very hard for many in modern American Christianity to accept but the church doesn't have a message on universal health care. We don't have a message on what the state can recognize as a marriage. We we have a position on all of them, but we don't have a message. We do have a message, though. It's a name. The name above every name. The name that God has highly exalted. The name alone, given under heaven upon earth, by which men must be saved. We have the name of Jesus Christ. And in his name, let us pray. Father, we acknowledge that your church has veered far from its message and it has substituted itself that in the church alone there is salvation. It has substituted political activism and getting out the vote. It has substituted moralism And legalism, it has substituted economic theories and socialism. It has substituted so many false gospels in the place of the one true crisis that it was meant to bring to all the nations of the world, the crisis of the name of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would truly reform and restore your church Bring back to it by the power of your Holy Spirit the only message that brings salvation, the message that brings moral reformation, the message that brings ethical guidance, as well as political and economic. But the only message, Father, from which men can receive salvation, and that is of the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. We pray, Father, for that revival. When Jesus again is highly exalted within his own church, and he once again becomes all in all and the only hope that man has. We ask, Father, that you would do this according to your promises, that you will glorify your name, and that there will come a day when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we ask that you would do it for the good of your people, that we might be vindicated, And that we might enjoy the blessing of you adding to the numbers of the church daily those who are being saved. And we ask this, Father, for the exaltation of that most glorious name, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.